This morning we are reading Matthew eight, twenty-three through 27. Then he got into the boat and his disciples followed him. Suddenly a furious storm came up on the lake so that the waves swept over the boat. But Jesus was sleeping. The disciples went and woke him saying, Lord, save us, we're going to drown. He replied, you have little faith, why are you so afraid? Then he got up and rebuked the winds and the waves, and it was completely calm. The men were amazed and asked, what kind of man is this? Even the winds and the waves obey him. All right, thank you. Good morning. It's me again. My name is Tommy. I'm the pastor here. And uh, so, um, Matthew chapter 8, week 46 uh, in the book of Matthew. Um, glad you're here. You could join us. I'll be turning 40 in three years. We'll be at the end. We'll be good. We'll be done. Um, and uh, so last week sort of ended sort of with this uh, mystery, right? Everyone loves a good mystery. Did the two disciples get in the boat or not? That is the big question that, that people would have, first century readers of this book would be reading this. Um, so here's how this went. Um, let, me build, let me back it up a little bit and set the stage for where we are today. So Jesus is in the area of Galilee. He's in a city, a village, a very small village called Capernaum. And he's, he's standing in a crowd of Jewish people. Many of them have been healed. Many of them have uh, understood the message of God in a whole new way. He's been doing incredible things, teaching incredible new things that they have never heard before, reconciling enemies, all kinds of stuff. And then it comes to a place where Jesus looks around him and it says, when Jesus saw the crowd around him, he gave orders to cross to the other side of the lake. doesn't tell us who he was talking to. We assume he was talking to the crowd in general and the reader because there's a message here. On the other side of the lake was this area of Rome called the Decapolis, Deca meaning 10, Polis meaning city, the 10 cities that were the centers of Greek thought in the ancient world. Um, much like the Jewish people, the Greek thinkers in the ancient world believed the whole world should be Greek. They believe the whole world should be just like them, should adopt their philosophies and their ideas. And then everyone would be enlightened and we'd all be at peace. The Jewish people laughed at this, yet they thought the same thing about their own ways. Everyone in the world should be Jewish and we should all be here speaking um, the same sort of Hebraic language and we should all, um, they should convert to our religion and do everything exactly like us. And nobody's sending missionaries to the other side to convince people we're just cordoning ourselves off. Jesus looks around him and he says, cross the lake. We're going there. We're going to those people. And we're going to go there and we're going to tell them about the love of God that is welcome uh, to them as well. And so, two people are left making a decision. One of them has to decide whether or not he's going to get in the boat. And he's struggling with what he's just heard, which is the idea that, that the kingdom of God is, is, is not the place where you're going to get all the glory and the riches and the wealth and the honor that, that the kingdoms of the, of the world give you. And so he's coming to grips with the fact that the greatest in the kingdom of God are the servants and the, low, and the lowly. And to go up, you have to go down. To achieve, you have to sort of lose. To win, you have to lose. That's the whole picture of the cross. Um, and then there's another man who's trying to figure out whether or not he can get in the boat. And, and he says, I need to go home basically and earn my inheritance first. Um, I've got a lot of money waiting for me one day. And so I'm going to get mine. And then I'm going to serve yours with what I get. Build my kingdom and then I'll come serve your kingdom. Um, we don't know if either of them get in the boat. You're not supposed to know. It's sort of a, someone last week likened it to, to a choose your own adventure book, right? Like if some of you have no idea what that is, 
I'm not even going to explain it. I'm just going to keep moving. Um, okay, so it's like, if you get in the boat, turn to chapter 8. If you didn't get in the boat, turn to chapter Revelation 21. Um, <laughs> end of book. Um, so, Jesus and the disciples get in the boat, and they're crossing the lake. Um, and then some things happen. Uh, uh, I just, okay, and suddenly a, a furious storm arose and came up on the lake. So that the waves swept over the boat. There's some interesting Greek here. The word for storm is actually the word for earthquake. It's really interesting. It's, it's very symbolic. It, it's got a lot of meaning. Um, the way Matthew has written this thing is filled with symbolism. It's beautiful. Okay, we're going to get there. But first, we need to do a little bit of history, as we should when we're going to read the Bible. Um, this is uh, about the kind of boat that they would have been in. Very small. Maybe if you pictured a giant pirate ship. Not possible. Um, this is the kind of boat, it would have had a deck like this across the middle that they would be standing on, a flat deck in a curved boat. A flat deck with a big square in the middle where you could get down and crawl underneath the deck. You'd have about this much space. You could get out of the sun because it was very hot at certain types of the day. The sun is very dangerous. Um, so this is also the Sea of Galilee. Uh, Mark is really, the, it's interesting, Mark is the first one to call it a sea. Um, it's more of a lake. You could row across the whole thing in about three and a half hours um, on one of these little boats. Um, so these boats were, a lot of rich people owned these boats. They were all around the lake, and this is great. Um, we have ancient documents, uh, records, and, and papyri and, and stuff that, that basically are um, pieces of paper, like rental contracts for these boats. People would rent the boats and go out in the water, and yes, at the bottom, there's literally a part that says, and when you bring it back, it must be undamaged, which raises interesting questions when they're in the storm, and they're like, this is a rental. Was this on your credit card? No, yours. Oh, no. And they're right. Um, okay. Here we are. Uh, this is another side. This is the Tiberius side of it. This is, this is a city called Tiberius. Um, this is like a 20s picture. Now there's like buildings everywhere. And it's all modernized. So I, I got this older one here so we could look at it. Plus it's got the cool like dot matrix stuff, right? Um, so here's more of these boats. Sea of Galilee, Lake of Galilee, whatever. We'll get to why it's called a sea. We're going to get there. It's all there. Now, um, there is... People get here and they look at this and they, they get there, they look at the ocean, the sea, the lake, and they're like, well, I don't really see how a giant storm could erupt on this that would be threatening at all. I could probably feel like I could swim this. Um, except here's the thing. It's at the bottom of a ravine, okay? All around it, there are mountain, mountain peaks, except on the east side, there is, um, might be the north, uh, it is, there's these, these canyons, okay, with a river feeding into the lake. Uh, very deep canyon, very high walls on it, and exactly the opposite side of the lake. There is another canyon with water heading out. It creates this sort of wind tunnel effect where the winds are being sort of funneled in, incredibly high pressure winds um, that creates really dangerous situations. Let me read you something. And I found a bunch of these. Um, this is one by uh, a Dr. Um, W.M. Christie, because when you're a scholar, you have to go by your two initials. Your names no longer exist. Um, so... Uh, he writes this, a company of visitors were standing on the shore at Tiberias, that's where this is, um, and noting the glassy surface of the water and the smallness of the lake, and they expressed doubts as to the possibility of such storms as those described in the gospel. Almost immediately, the wind sprang up, and in 20 minutes, the sea was white with foam-crested waves. 
Great billows broke over the towers at the corner of the city walls, and the visitors were compelled to seek shelter from the blinding spray, though now 200 yards from the lakeside. This happens. Like, this is a terrifying thing that happens on this body of water uh, where the, the winds will pick up and cause these massive breaks that can drown people and have drowned people. Um, in the last 50 years or so, we actually found one of these boats buried in the mud as the, as the water receded, and we've dug it out, and you can actually go see it. Um, it's fascinating. People used to drown in this, like, all the time during these storms. So, um, so there's a little bit of context as to what's going on here. I'm going to give you one more huge piece of context, uh, and then we're, going to, then we're going to study the passage. So, this piece of context has to do with the Jewish idea of the water. Now, the Jewish people, the Israelites, were not seafaring people at all. I've talked about this before. Their neighbors were. The Egyptians were known to have a huge army that could travel by, by sea and by land, um, Conquered many places. The Phoenicians were some of the greatest sailing nations ever to exist in the world. Um, the Romans had these massive armies that could take flight on the sea and, and raid and attack other cities. The, the Israelites never once attacked anyone by sea, ever. Um, they rarely ever went on the sea. They were a semi-nomadic shepherding people that lived on the land and they only traveled by land. There are several things that could have made their journey a lot easier had they chose to be seafaring people, but they were terrified of the water. Their theology was written in a way that terrified them of the water. Um, and let me, so let me read you some of this. Um, at the very beginning of the scriptures, you start with Genesis 1, you start with darkness, chaos on the face of the waters. Um, those are words that describe sort of this dark, deep, scary mystery. Um, Job chapter three, if you read the, 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 the chapter of Job chapter three, there's this really interesting sort of metaphorical tale of this beast Leviathan who lives at the bottom of the sea. He's like the embodiment of evil, right? Um, the sea is called the abyss in that book and the, and the beast lives at the bottom of the sea. Um, and so let me read you some of that. It says, uh, it talks about those who are ready to rouse Leviathan, the evil people. Uh, and when it rises up, the mighty are terrified and they retreat before it's thrashing. And it talks about how it breathes fire. And it's got claws and it's, rah, it's scary. Um, and they're terrified of the things that live in the water. And Jeremiah, the prophet Jeremiah in chapter uh, five, he writes about the power of God and how, how the ocean, the sea wants to destroy us all, but God holds it back because God is more powerful than darkness and evil. It's very theological. Um, and he says, I have placed the sand as a boundary for the sea, an eternal decree so that it cannot cross over it. Though the waves toss, yet they cannot prevail. Though they roar, yet they, they cannot cross over the sand. Um, and so then you have in the book of Revelation, you have this beast in chapter 13. It rises up out of the sea. It's got seven heads, 10 horns. Upon its horns, 10 crowns. Upon its head, the name of blasphemy. It's evil, evil and darkness, dwell in the abyss, in the water. There's a place where Jesus is walking to them on the water and they look at Jesus and they scream, ah, a ghost. They're terrified. They think he's a ghost because they're over the abyss. And they, they um, remember when Jesus cast the demons out and they go into the pigs. Where do the pigs go? Into the water. It's all through their, all through their theology. They're terrified of it. Um, of course, N.T. Wright, 
course. It says this, the sea remained in Jewish writing a place uh, and a power of darkness and evil, threatening and wild. Sometimes the sea appears as the primal element, the dark substance out of which and in opposition to which the creator God makes his beautiful world, winning a victory over the sea and all that it stands for. So the creation story itself was this story of God's victory over evil in the world, parting it, bringing land that brings life and love and is fruitful and multiplies. The story itself of Genesis to the Israelites was this proclamation of a God who is more powerful than any evil in the world. All right. Um, We have dumbed that story down to be something entirely different. Um, That was this incredible life-giving, inspiring story in the ancient world. So um, here we are. This is the context with which Matthew's audience, they are first century Palestinian Jewish Christians. It's a mouthful. That's who they are. This is how they read the Bible. Okay. We are reading their book. Okay. Now we come to our story. Then he got into the boat and his disciples followed him. Suddenly a furious storm came up on the lake so that the waves swept over the boat. Jesus was sleeping and the disciples went and woke him saying, Lord, save us. We're all going to drown. He replied, oh, you of little faith, are you so afraid? And then he got up and rebuked the wind and the waves and it was completely calm. And the men were amazed and asked, what kind of man is this? Even the winds and the waves obey him. Okay. Um, Over and over. So I'm going to put that aside for now and remind you of something. Over and over and over. Matthew is writing his book. He's specifically pitting Jesus against Old Testament prophets, okay? Um, He says that Jesus is greater than Moses, and he has Jesus doing Moses-like things, all right? The flight to Egypt, the the 40 days in the wilderness, wandering in the wilderness, all of that. Um, He pits Jesus against Abraham and says, Jesus is better than Abraham. He does all these other things. And then and he said, Jesus is better than Elijah. He does all these other things. And so over and over again, Matthew is writing to his audience who loved all these prophets. And he's saying, Jesus is greater than all of them, all of them. And there's one more prophet here that Matthew is going to compare to Jesus. And it's in this story and in the Jewish people. So by the age of 13, as a first century Jew, you would have memorized the first five books of the Old Testament. It's called the Pentateuch. You would have memorized them word for word and could recite them at any point. Um, the women as well, by the age of 13, would, would have memorized the books of Psalm and Proverbs, by the way, which is always why the women are always quoting Psalms and Proverbs. This was their important text. Um, and so they knew the Bible. They understood the Bible. They knew the stories. And as Matthew is telling these stories, he is fashioning them in a way different than the other gospel writers to speak to his audience. Mark has another story of this, of Jesus with the disciples in the boat with the waves. It's written differently than Matthew's is. Matthew's is written in a specific way for a specific reason. Because as he's writing it, the original readers are hearing the story of Jonah. Over and over. Like every little piece of this story lines up with the story of Jonah, but it's told in a way that Jesus is greater than Jonah, okay? Let me show you some of the parallels, and they're fascinating. And there's a lot more than this. I was talking afterwards with some people. There's a ton more in the book of Jonah. We're just, here's the important ones in this story. Uh, both Jonah and Jesus are called to go reach some people that, they, that, that their people did not want to reach, okay? We're going to get to that in a few minutes. Um, both are suddenly overtaken by storms. Both stories have the center figure of the story, asleep underneath the boat in the storm. 
okay? Um, both stories um, have that same figure awakened by people who are terrified for fear of death in the story. Um, both stories have God intervening and miraculously calming the storms instantaneously, just calming it. Um, and both stories end with the people in the boat being more afraid now that the storm is over than they were when the storm was raging. It's exactly the same. And there's a reason for this because Matthew wants his audience to be reading this story and reading the story of Jesus and knowing the story of Jonah. Um, And it's something that we are kind of detached from as 21st century Americans reading the Bible. We're not Jewish. So we have to sort of get in this mindset. Now, with all of this um, being said, um, Matthew, after he tells the story, three chapters from now, will tell you why he told you this story. Matthew literally says, the men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and now something greater than Jonah is here. Matthew is always, he tells them something, and then he tells them what he just told them, and says, remember why I told you that, okay? The audience is thinking Jonah, and so when we read this, we are going to think Jonah And we're going to contemplate why Matthew wants them to think about Jonah and what this means for us. Okay, so I'm going to start with some observational questions about the story. I'm going to start off with a simple question. Why did Jesus cross the lake? This is not a joke. Um, It's not about a chicken. Get to the other side. By the way, have I mentioned that's an existential joke? Why a chicken cross the road to get to the other side? He's afraid of, to die. Never mind. We don't have to do that. Okay. Anyways, so he gets in the boat with the disciples. They're crossing the pond, the lake, the sea, as they call it. The reason Mark calls it a sea is because it has a representation of evil. Okay. So they get in the boat. They're crossing the Sea of Galilee. Remember, I already told you, he is taking the message of God to these people who are the enemies of the Jewish people. The Jewish people never cared if these, uh, if these Greeks... Um, were cast out by God, if they were destroyed, if they were wiped out, because they knew one day God was going to come, save his people, wipe everyone else out, establish the kingdom, and they were together going to rule over everyone else who was left, okay? So Jesus says, we're getting in the boat. We're going to those people. And they get in, and they start heading off across the lake. Um, God didn't want to wipe them out. He, didn't, he wanted them to find reconciliation and forgiveness and for the nations to come together under a new Lord, okay? He wants the world to come to the, uh, to, to the revelation and the recognition that there is one Lord and it's Jesus. Okay, now, let's ask the same question of Jonah. Why did Jonah get in the boat to go across the ocean? Um, so, the story of Jonah, in case you don't know, he's an Israelite, just like the people in Capernaum, just like Jesus. He's an Israelite. And he was told to take the message of uh, a God's message of love, to the Assyrians. That is a huge deal. The Assyrians, these particular Assyrians, lived in a town called Nineveh. Um, the Assyrians and the Israelites have a long, painful history. The Assyrians, uh, for generations, had been killing thousands and thousands of Israelites. They had laid siege to them, starved them to death, had tortured them, had stolen their land, taken them into exile. And for generations, the Israelites were oppressed by the Assyrians. Over and over and over. The Israelites hated the Assyrians and and could not wait for their destruction to come. It could not come quick enough. And then Jonah, the prophet, 
uh, God comes to Jonah and says, I want you to take my message to the Assyrians in Nineveh. And, J- and, and Jonah says, no way am I going to do that. Okay? He even tells, and so what Jonah does, he turns and runs the other way. And Jonah later tells us why he ran the other way. And here's the reason why he didn't want to obey God. I tried fleeing to Tarshish because I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. And I really wanted calamity on those people. Like, I refuse. And the part in the story where, jo- where, where Jonah turns and runs the other direction, everyone, every Jewish person reading the book in the ancient world would be like, yes, go, 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 go. Don't let God save those people. Don't let God love them. You turn. He's way too loving. We know. Go. Okay? Run the other way. And the book ends. The book of, the book of Jonah is a book about reconciliation. That things tomorrow doesn't have to be like today. We can reconcile. We can make things whole again. Um, we don't have to have this relationship. We can come together and, and, and make things right. There can be forgiveness. And the wounds of our past don't have to determine our future. We can make this right. Um, and the book ends with this question. Where, with God speaking to Jonah. And he says, should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh? in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left? He says, they just don't know. If they knew what you know, they, they, they would be with you. They would stop what they're doing. They just, it's sort of like Jesus on the cross, like forgive them, they just don't know what they're doing. They don't understand what they're here for, what life is about, okay? Um, and it's funny, because actually after this, I didn't put it on there, but there's a, it says, um, it says more than 120,000 people who cannot tell the right hand from the left. And then he says, and also much cattle. <laughs> they got cows too, right? What about the cow? Think of the cows. It's for all the bleeding hearts, right? Like with the cows, think of the cows. Okay. Um, okay. So Jonah literally runs and he's in the boat crossing the water because God told him to go save these people whom he hated. This is like telling... A South Korean, I want you to go marching into North Korea and proclaim the message of God. And they're like, "Uh uh-uh, no way. Okay, so the reason Jesus and the disciple are in the boats is technically the same reason that Jonah was in the boat, but Jesus is a better Jonah because instead of running from these people, he's, he's getting in the boat to head towards them, okay? So there's step one in understanding this whole thing that would have been really important um, for the Jewish audience of Matthew. So, What we have here is a New Testament writer making sure that the early church understands that God intends to be merciful to their enemies. Those whom they would kill, God intends to save. Those who they hate and want to strike down, God intends to wrap his arms around in love. And he wants them to understand this because they struggled with the same hatred that you and I struggle with. They struggled with it. That was them. Now, I have another question. Um, Why did the disciples wake Jesus up? And you hear that and you're like, well, obviously there was a storm and they wanted Jesus to stop the storm from coming. Really? Let's look at this again. Okay. Uh, The disciples went and woke him saying, Lord, save us. We're going to drown. He replies, oh, ye of little faith. Why are you so afraid? He gets up and he rebukes the wind and the waves. And it was completely calm. Verse 27 is the important part. And they were amazed and asked, what kind of man is this? Even the winds and the waves obey him. They didn't know he could do that. This is brand new information to them. They're like, whoa, did you see that? Did not expect that. Well, then why did you wake him up? 
What did you want from him? That's actually a really important question to this, uh, to this passage. And as you read uh, commentaries from people who understand the Jewish culture, they write about this. Um, because Matthew's audience has an expectation. Um, they know why they're waking Jesus up. They know what needs to happen for the water to be made calm. They know what it is. Let's read together, shall we? Okay, uh, Jonah chapter one. I, I picked the important verses here. I cut a lot of stuff out. Read it this week. Um, at some point, sit down and read it and ponder it. It's an amazing, incredibly well-written, beautiful story. Um, there's, even a, there's even a part where the boat thinks. The boat thinks aloud. And the boat's like, I feel, I feel like I'm going to break up. That's in there, all right? There's awesome stuff in there. There's guys trying to build a fire and make sacrifices in the rain on a boat. It's awesome. Okay, here we go. Verse seven. Oh, oh by the way, hold on. Um, you all know the story. Swallowed by a fish, goes to Nineveh, throws up, he's on the land. Okay. Um, Nineveh's God that they worshiped was literally, if you look at, if you find out who the God was, I forget his name. I, I didn't have time to go into it today, but here we are going into it. Um, he, it's, their God is depicted as a guy in a fish suit. Like his, his human head in a mouth, in like a fish's mouth and his arms sticking out of the fish and walking like half fish, half man. So what they end up with is their own God, a symbol of their God coming ashore and saying, there's a greater God. What? It's all, okay, it's amazing. Okay. Verse seven. Then the sailors said to each other, because they're in the storm right now, uh, come, let us cast lots and find out who is responsible for this calamity. So hold on. Casting lots. We don't really know what this was. It's some form of ancient dice, um, but it was, a, it was a binary system. So two sort of things that you would throw, and depending on how they landed, it would it would be the gods talking to you, sort of like an ancient magic eight ball, right? Um, are we going to survive this? Looks optimistic. Okay. Um, they cast lots and the lots fell on Jonah. And so they asked him, tell us who is responsible for making all this trouble for us. And he answered, I am a Hebrew. I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Hold on. You worship the God who created the seas and the heavens and the dry land? Because we've been offering sacrifices to our gods and it hasn't done anything. And we wake you up and you tell us that your God is actually the God of the seas and the heavens and the dry land. And it literally says, and they were more terrified than before. They're like, what did you do to your God? Right? They're like terrified now. Okay. Um, And verse 12, uh, he says, pick me up and throw me into the sea. He replied, and it will become calm. I know that it is my fault that this great storm has come upon you. And they took Jonah And they threw him overboard, and the raging seas grew calm. So, and of course, the story ends with them being more terrified now, just like um, our story in Matthew. So, when when the reader, Matthew's audience, first century Palestinian Jewish Christian, is reading this story, and there's a storm, and there's somebody asleep in the boat, It's all Jonah in their head over and over and over and over and over. And so then they wake Jesus up. They know why they're waking Jesus up. Because somebody's got to be thrown overboard. Somebody has committed some sin. Somebody has to die. Somebody has to be sacrificed and thrown into the abyss. Right? And so, here we go. So they wake Jesus up and he he replied, Oh, you of little faith, why are you so afraid? And then he pointed his finger at one guy. 
and said, it's this guy's fault, throw him in the water. It's not what happened at all. That's exactly what they're expecting. It's a, it's a Shyamalan ending. Here we go. He got up and he turns and rebukes the winds and the waves and it was completely calm. So Jesus, with all these disciples, we've just had this long discussion about, are, do you understand what it takes to follow Jesus? Do you have enough faith to give up all these dreams that you have? Are you able to follow Jesus, to get in that boat and to go to these people that you have no desire to love and reach? Um, are you willing? Do you have enough faith? There'll be some readers that will say, yes, I have enough faith and they'll get in the boat. But you know what? We never really think we have enough faith. There's always times where we're all doubting um, our own lives, our own ability to, to follow Jesus in all these different things we are called to follow Jesus in. It's incredibly difficult. It's incredibly hard. And there's others who faked it and they got in the boat and you're a follower of Jesus, but you have these internal struggles and nobody knows about them except for you. And so the storm is raging and you're afraid you're going to wake Jesus up and Jesus is going to look at you and be like, it's his fault. He's the faker around here. And you're going to be thrown into the water. Because this is, this is the Old Testament story of God. This is who God is. If we, if we get God's attention, he's going to look at me and he's going to see how sinful I am. And he's going to cast me into the abyss. Into the place where evil people go. That's what I deserve. And so the way this goes is stunning to the original reader. He says, why are you so afraid? And all of them are looking at each other. You know why they're afraid? Because they know the storm had to be calmed. And they're likely all afraid that they're going to be thrown in the water. Um, it's a really interesting sort of moment in the mindset of the original reader. So, I mean, this raises questions. Um, have you ever had sort of this nagging fear that because you doubted or, or because your level of faith is not up to par where it should be that, that you have this fear of being exposed before God? I have. Likely you have. This constant nagging fear that like, I, you know, I have, I have doubts. Maybe it's not, I have an internal life that nobody knows about except for me. And it's not all good. Some of it's very bad, but nobody knows, but God knows. And I'm kind of scared. Um, or have you ever thought to yourself, I am nowhere near knowledgeable enough or strong enough to stand before God and I'm terrified. These are the readers. This is why there's been this option right before this. You want to get in the boat or not? Here's, here's what this comes with. And the reader now likely pictures themselves. I'm a fraud. I doubt. I don't really believe the path of Jesus is the right way. I I struggle with the theology of the cross, what it means to live sort of this cruciform life. It's very complicated. It's very difficult. Um, have you ever been told maybe that you asked maybe some question and it was the wrong question, right? And then suddenly um, people are telling you, you don't have enough faith because you have the wrong question and you've maybe been threatened with being thrown out of the boat. I, I know some of you here have been thrown out of the boat. That's how you came here. And I've talked to you. And you said, yeah, I, I was thrown out. The church didn't want me. And so this is where we are. That is a religious response. That is what Jonah um, and the people in Jonah's day, that's what they had. It was a religious response. And the religious response is someone's got to die. Something's got to be thrown in the water. We have to make this sacrifice. Who's got the most sin? You into the water. And then we come to this passage 
And he looks at them. He, he looks at all of them, the stone. They wake him up and they're like, save us. And he looks at them and says, oh, you of little faith. Who's got, they all have little faith. We all do. None of you are good enough. I'm not good enough. We all have these struggles and these ways that we doubt that the path of Jesus is, is really going to be effective in, in what we're dealing with. And it's, it sounds really foolish. Have you ever thought about how, how wrong the path of the cross actually sounds when you say it out loud? Paul even said this, the, the cross is foolishness to those who don't believe. Um, it doesn't seem to make sense that loving your enemies could somehow win them over. It doesn't seem to make sense that um, by, by taking up the cross instead of the sword that we can bring about peace. It doesn't sound like um, the right thing to do to follow Jesus in all these difficult ways that, that the storms are raging around us and Jesus is sitting there at peace. Instead of rebuking the people and saying, it's this person's fault, throw them out. Kill this person, kill this person, topple these people. Instead, he turns around and he looks at the wind and the waves and he just stops them. He speaks to the storm. And he tells them all, you all know you have little faith, right? All of us do. It's this sort of moment of like, of relief when we can all be honest and have this community of confession and say, yeah, I'm not where I should be. And we are collectively crawling towards Jesus together. Um, the disciples are reacting from a place of fear. Fear tells you, you need safety. Someone's got to be killed. Someone, you have to stop this thing now. Find out whose fault it is. Do away with them. And Jesus is sleeping in the boat. He's not afraid. And over and over and over again, he tells his disciples, don't have fear. Stop being scared. Don't be afraid. Life is incredibly short. Incredibly short. You get halfway through it and you start thinking, wow, that was, that was really, really fast. There's not a lot left. And by the way, it speeds up faster and faster as you go. And you're going to live that in fear? You're going to trust everything the world is telling you about how things are made right? They're, they're offering you the same ideas that every government before them has offered, every, every nation before them has offered, every politician has offered, every guru has offered. It's all the same information. The message of the cross is this really unique, different thing. It's, it's this dichotomy that victory comes by losing, that peace comes by picking up the cross and serving, not by having power over. And in the midst of the greatest empire in the world, Jesus stands there in the midst of Rome with all their power and all their armies and all, their, all of it, and Rome ended up actually, a huge part of the downfall of Rome was the Christians who refused to admit that their way was the right way. And the whole time stood there and said, but we love you and we'll lay down our lives for you. That is not the right way. We serve a suffering savior. We serve a savior who went to the cross instead of picking up this other way, the way of all of you. And if you're waiting for some pastor or some theologian to stand up and tell you, and here's why the way of the cross makes sense, you will never receive that. It doesn't make sense. But it makes salvation and it makes healing somehow. The way of the cross is foolishness. We have to get that out there. It doesn't make sense to love your enemies, to turn the other cheek, to pour yourself out, and somehow serve the Prince of Peace and bring salvation and healing and be filled up. It doesn't make sense, which is exactly why we've never figured it out. 
which is why it took God incarnate entering into our world to reveal to us the way of the cross is how it works. This is it. And we have to admit that every single day, we don't get it. We don't understand it. We rarely buy into it. But when we actually practice it, we find it's right. We find it's true. And this is why um, it's, it's imperative for the Christians to realize you are a citizen of the kingdom of God. First and foremost, that is your citizenship. You are resident aliens wherever you live in this world. You live um, by a constitution that is the Sermon on the Mount. You follow um, a savior who is not great because he has power. He's great because he gave up all his power and suffered and took up the towel and washed the feet of people and died on the cross that was designed to, to show how weak people are. And he's like, oh, let me show you how, how power really works. Enters onto this cross, died, buried three days later, awakened with a church, a body that ended up spreading over the whole world. And it all goes wrong when we get our eyes off of this Jesus movement and the way of the cross and we put our eyes on these other things and then the storms rise up. So there's this, um, there's this scholar named uh, Gunther Bornkamp. He was a, he was a, he was a, a, a German theologian. He, he writes about this passage and he writes about how the patristic fathers um, used to read this passage as liturgy whenever the world entered into a storm and the church didn't know what to do. When, when the world, world War II broke out, um, when things get complicated and difficult and the church doesn't know what to do. Gunther Bornkamp writes about how, how the patristic fathers, they would gather and they would read this story and the boat symbolized the church in their mind and everyone in the boat was all the people. And instead of turning on each other, we come to Christ who we know is at rest and we say, what do we do? And we admit that we, we tend to act from fear and Jesus says, follow me. And instead of pointing at the people, he turns to the storm and he curses the storm. And he turns back and why are you so afraid? All of you who have little faith, you're, you're not going to be my enemy. I have no enemies. I love all. I, I'm moving towards these enemies of yours. Why are you so afraid? And it's this incredible, they would sit there and they would read this to each other. And this would remind them, be at peace. It's well, it's okay. We struggle, we doubt, we have fears. What do we do? And Jesus says, follow me. Sit down, let's rest, contemplate the cross, and let's go to the, move towards our enemies. It's incredible. And it doesn't make sense. And it's not gonna make sense. And so you can debate all day about the right response to anything. As Christians, we remind ourselves, we gather every week to remind ourselves, Jesus is Lord. And we contemplate that. And we compare that to all of the ways that we don't really believe Jesus is Lord. And the reason you don't believe is because you're afraid. I get that. Christians have always understood that. Jesus really is Lord. There is none above Jesus. He's the way, he's the truth, he's the life. No one comes to the Father but by him. This is how you enter into the kingdom of, of God. And so then we come, we're going to take communion now. Our communion servers can, uh, you can take the elements and spread around the room. Um, communion is, is the practice of remembering. This is, this is how we're fed. This is how we find our hope. Um, if you're waiting for it to make sense, it's not going to until you live it out, until you follow it. 
The, foolishness, the, the cross is foolishness to those who don't believe. But to the believer, it's salvation, it's life, it's healing. It is the way. And so we're going to take some time and uh, we're going to come to the communion table. It's the body of Christ broken for you, the blood of Christ spilled for you. And you, you take a piece of, of the bread and you dip it in the wine and you eat it. Um, you take it inside yourself and you pray that God would reveal to you the ways that your life has not lined up with Jesus is Lord. Um, and we repent. And every single time we do this, we hope that somehow some of this will stick and our life will align a little more on the path of Christ. And we move towards him in, in community. And so whoever you are, whatever, whatever, uh, whatever brought you here this morning, um, whatever you're, you're, you're wrestling with or grappling with, trying to understand, I want to welcome you to the table of Christ. We all have differences of opinion about life, about theology, about everything. And the communion table is the great equalizer. It's the body of Christ broken for us. The blood of Christ spilled for us. This is where we all find unity. So come take communion with us. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this place and these people. Guide us. Make us whole. Pull the scales off of our eyes and reveal to us that, uh, that you are Lord. There's all these other things that we are constantly making Lord that we are putting our trust in. And the whole time, you're reminding us of the cross. You're reminding us of the body broken and the blood spilled. And that this is how we are filled. And this is how hope enters into the world. And this is how we are made whole. Remind us who bear your name to align our lives with you. Remind us that we will doubt, we will struggle, we will commit idolatry. When we do, speak to us. Ask us what we're so afraid of. Remind us of what it is that you're doing here. You're not here to throw us out and cast us into the abyss. You are here to bring us life abundantly. Bring us into your kingdom and bring your kingdom into this world. Amen. Take some time. Talk to Jesus.